are the confessions of American Christians recovering from American Christianity. This is the world we made. we made. I'm here with Pastor Jacob Menzel. And I'm here with Nathan Alberson. That's me. And this is our series on homosexuality and how we as Christians can love those tempted by homosexuality. We've been sharing moments from a conversation with Pastor Tim Bailey on the subject, and today we're asking the big question. Oh man, that's so exciting. What's the big question? Nature or nurture? Ooh, that's a toughie. So nurture is like something happened like in their environment like that you can trace back that influenced them and like made them gay and nature is like born this way who sings that lady gaga Ooh. oh I let's yeah let's keep it that way ah. so we asked him straight up what causes homosexuality nature nurture some combination thereof I do think that it's true, and I would say beyond true, I think that it's hard to argue that men that are tempted by homosexual intimacy are men who have failed to embrace their manhood with other young men when they came of age. I personally have said to my wife, I don't ever want my kids to be in a public junior high school. I might be able to live with them being in a public elementary school or high school. But junior high is such a tender age, and there are a lot of things that can cause a young boy becoming a man to not close with his sexual identity properly. I think one of the most frequent things is not having other boys who are good friends and having the sort of rough and tumble kind of joking, kind of feeling each other out, testing each other's courage, testing each other's gifting. I think that that's pivotal in development of one's sexual identity. Tim went on to tell a story from his ministry. It happened at a men's retreat. They had multiple basketball courts and other free space in this gym. I began to throw frisbee with some of the men there. And there was a very peculiar man in his 30s who sort of hung around on the fringes of the gymnasium. I was a senior pastor. It was a large church. I was trying to watch for men that weren't bonding with other men in that time. You know, when you get into physical sports, you have to be concerned about gay men because gay men tend. Now, remember, the guy I lived with in San Diego was the racquetball champion. So, you know, he's the exception that proves the rule. But generally, gay men are not as comfortable in sports exchanges with other men. Anyhow, this guy was over there. And, you know, the good thing about Frisbee is you can just throw a Frisbee to anybody that's standing there and say, here, here's the Frisbee. So I threw it to him. Well, he picked it up and it was obvious immediately that he was petrified, that I had outed him as being someone who did not know how to throw a Frisbee. And I hadn't meant to do that. You know, there were a whole bunch of guys playing Frisbee. So everybody's eyes were on him. It was horrible because I knew that he was petrified. And so I ran over to him and I was probably 42, 43 at the time. And I went behind him. I put my arms around him because that's how you teach somebody to throw a Frisbee. He was pretty fat and odd looking. I put my arm around him and I took his hand under my hand and I curled his fingers under the lip of the Frisbee. And then I took his other hand under my left hand 
and I put his hand on the Frisbee, and then I did the arm, the wrist twisting motion, and I said, okay, all you do is keep this Frisbee parallel to the ground, bring your arm from your left to your right side, and as you bring it to the right side, just flick your wrist and let it go. Keep it level to the ground. And so sure enough, he took his arm, brought it across the front of his stomach, and flicked his wrist, and of course, it sailed beautifully, not very far, but it was clear he had just thrown a Frisbee. And I don't remember what happened from that point on. To me, it was a very simple thing of trying to help a man who lacked confidence and was afraid. Later that day during fellowship time, he walked up to me. He started to tear up and he said, Pastor Bailey, nobody has ever helped me throw a Frisbee before. Thank you so much. Nobody had ever loved me like that before. Well, his appearance is odd. He's overweight, he's not attractive, his personality's a little weird. So, nature or nurture? Nature or nurture? I'm starting to maybe kind of sort of hear nurture. I think that there are many, many people who have trouble asking a woman out on a date, who have trouble throwing a frisbee, who have trouble doing anything with other men, and therefore they don't gain the confidence of manhood, and therefore they have great trouble even thinking about relating to a woman as a man. Those men often are very good at relating to women as a woman, but they don't know how to relate as a man. Why not? Well, I think that in many cases, the problem is that they were not acclimated to their manhood at a pivotal time in their lives. And so they eroticized masculinity instead of femininity. Instead of manhood being their identity, manhood became something that they looked at and looked at wistfully at first and then erotically, and they fixated on manhood to such a degree that manhood took on the appeal that womanhood was supposed to have for them. Does that make any sense to you? Yeah, what, why would something like that happen to somebody? Well, sometimes I think it's their appearance. That's why I've made a big deal of, out of this man's appearance. I think that young men and boys can be very cruel and often are very, very cruel. And so when he was there tearing up in his gratitude to me, I was just sickened to think of probably all the Christian young men who had oppressed him. And I don't want to turn him into a victim, okay? He's responsible for his sexual fixation on other men, which, of course, he was tempted by homosexuality, I found out. But there are consequences to us oppressing people. As Tim said that, I started to think about a boy that I grew up with that was in a lot of my classes growing up all the way back from elementary school through middle school and into high school. He never really fit in. He didn't have a lot of guy friends or really any guy friends. It was never really a part of things. He was a sweet kid, a very sweet kid, very smart. Teachers loved him. He'd do anything for anybody. But he was sort of effeminate. Um, he had a little bit of a lisp. He was not athletic in any way. He wasn't going to fit in or be a part of anything. And so he, we just made fun of him. He got made fun of more and more and more, as, especially as you know we got into those middle school years and then into high school. And everybody called him gay and called him a faggot and stuff like that. What do you know? That, that's how he turned out. And looking back, and this is one of my most serious regrets, not including this boy and making him a part of the group and instead being actually one of the principal people who made fun of him.
And so we have to see that our sin begets sin in other people, begets vulnerabilities, begets weaknesses. If a father rapes his daughter, that father ruins, he corrupts his daughter. And there are consequences of that the rest of her life, and some of them are sinful. She commits some sins because of her father's sin against her. Her husband, if she marries, will suffer. And these are very serious things. You know, some people say, well, in every case, homosexuality is not a product of genetics. It's a product of choices that that individual has made. And I am no way want to minimize the moral agency of homosexual men and women, none. They are responsible. It's not a victimless crime. It's, it's not consensual. It is sinners sinning against other sinners, and they will give an account to God for their sin. However, there are ameliorating circumstances in their childhood. Tim had more stories. I had a man that I worked with in Boulder, and I'm sorry to say this, he was a leader in his church, he was a wicked man. And that man, uh, and I'm not going to tell you what that man would do, but I will tell you that that man, when he was born, his mother wanted a girl, and he was a boy, and so for years she dressed him in dresses, and she treated him like a little girl. And that's not an uncommon story with boys and girls. A lot of little girls, their dad wanted a boy, and their dad raises them to be brash, to be completely lacking in any feminine deference, to be pushy, to be bodacious, to be risk-takers physically. The consequences of that father not calling his daughter and helping her to identify as a woman are her lust after other women, which is an abomination to God and which is an incredibly tenacious sin. So I think homosexuality in men and women is very, very much uh, the product of things that have happened and very different things. So now, Jake, in your professional pastoral opinion, what is the common thread that unites most of these people who failed to close with their sexuality and subsequently went on? Daddy issues. Yeah. Yeah, when you look at boys that have trouble engaging with other boys, knowing how to relate to other boys, who feel more comfortable relating to, to girls or women growing up, one of the things that you'll find is that they just don't have any kind of relationship with their dads, no real intimacy with their dads, no understanding of how to relate to their dads. Dad's not there, dad's emotionally distant, dad's gone for one reason or another. They don't have that first connection with a man that's healthy and intimate. And so it makes it difficult for them to then turn around and connect with peers who are men. And there are all kinds of ways that that then gets twisted and perverted and sexualized. Yeah, dads, dads are just like everything. There's another man I think of who talked to me about his father. His father, when he was a very little boy, walked out on his mother. And as he walked out, he said things to this little boy that are so horrible that they're burned into that man's mind forever. And I believe it contributed to that man being vulnerable to homosexuality as an adult. And because that father wasn't in his home also, that little boy was vulnerable to a homosexual person in their neighborhood. I can talk about another guy who was a professor at a reform seminary who had absolutely no strength to teach his son to be a man. And that little boy was molested by a neighbor boy. And when he finally got up the courage to tell his father, his father did absolutely nothing about it to protect his son. Oh, great professor at a reform seminary. Da -da 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 -da. I think that we have to be very, very aware of the degree to which many people who are homosexually tempted as adults have suffered terribly as little children.
Now, Jake, just one thing about Tim's evidence. What's that? It's like kind of anecdotal, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, like, where's the statistics and research and journals and sociological and psychological tests and academic reports? However, shall we discern the truth without them? You'd have to be pretty dumb to think you'd learn anything about human beings from experiences with actual human beings, right? Well, you want an academic paper? I'll give you an academic paper. What? It's called Sexuality and Gender, Findings from the Biological, Psychological, and Social Sciences by Dr. Lawrence S. Mayer, a scholar-in-residence at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, and Dr. Paul McHugh, a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences, also at Johns Hopkins. Now, the whole thing is a little beyond our purview, but if you're interested, we'll link to it in the show notes. Basically, they obliterate the idea that there's any hard scientific proof for the born-this-way camp. Yeah, and actually now the born-this-way camp is trying to obliterate them. That's also a little beyond our purview, but we'll link to an article on it in the show notes as well. Cool. Now, Tim, as you can tell, is pretty squarely in the nurture camp, but I asked him next if he would make any provision for nature being a cause for homosexuality. Basically, I hear you saying nurture, right? Yeah, and I I don't have any pony in the race of whether or not there is nature. Uh, If they did find a a genetic uh, anchor to homosexual temptation, it wouldn't faze me. You know, it's very popular to say, you know, some of the people that uh, are trying to modulate their position on homosexuality right now because of how intense culture is and the fear of getting lawsuits and being accused of hate crimes and everything. Everybody in the Reformed, the conservative Christian church today is trying to fall all over themselves saying that sexual orientation is a real deal and, and we should not be involved in reparative therapy and you just, why you just don't know where the, you know, everybody's trying to deny knowing anything and and one of the ways they do this is they say that sexual orientation starts very early in life very very early and therefore sexual orientation is a real deal well it's fascinating they never say homosexual orientation they say sexual orientation then they say that since it's so deep-seated and I remember listening to Bill Hybels giving an interview Bill Hybels is the pastor of Willow Creek, the Chicagoland megachurch, which Wikipedia describes as non-denominational, evangelical, and multi-generational. They run about 26,000 attendees a week. Here's Pastor Hybels in the interview Tim is referring to. We'll let him speak for himself. I've probably had over the 40 years, 200 people from this church come out to me because I'm your pastor. And those are precious moments. Usually I just wrap my arms around someone and I just say, tell me your story. Let's just start. Tell me your story. Let's get a cup of coffee. You tell me their story, your your story. In almost every single situation when I ask the question, did you choose to be gay? In the 200 people or so that have come out to me, not a single person has ever ever said, oh yeah, I flipped a coin, decided to be gay. (laughs) Never. They say, I discovered I was gay. I didn't choose it. I discovered I was. Then I usually say, then what did you do? They said, then I got scared. Then what did you do? Well, then I prayed, and then I did everything I could to try to change to be hetero. Then what did you do? When I found out that I couldn't change, then I became despondent and turned to God and said, you're my only hope. I go, and then what did, you, what did you do? They said, then I tried to find my way to a church, and in many cases, I'd say, then what happened? And then they'd say, they found out I, I was gay, and they kicked me out. I go, oh, that's great. That's great. You didn't choose it. You tried to change. You found out that in your case, you seemingly couldn't. So you grab onto God and you try to get engaged in a church and you get tossed. There's got to be a better way. 
There has to be a way that a church like ours that holds the traditional biblical view that marriage should be between a man and a woman and that sexual relationships should be reserved for that union and all the rest of us should be chaste and pure with our sexuality. But there has to be a way that we can hold on to a biblical position of the traditional view of marriage and be respectful and inclusive to people in the LGBT community who are trying to live for God, trying to love God, and trying to at least be a part of a church that won't toss them. And here's Tim with the rebuttal. When he's making the point that this started very early and they didn't choose it, what he's really arguing is that it comes from, from nature. Yeah, you know, he doesn't say it comes from nature, but very, very early, before they ever remember, why is the earliest memory? And this is a way of really putting the blame on nature. And let's make no mistake about it. Many people think that if we can put the blame for homosexual temptation on nature, what we've really done is put the blame on God. Because when many people speak about nature, what they're really speaking about is God. God made me gay. The minute I say that, you realize, yes, many, many people say that. And so let's say that there is a marker, a genetic marker for homosexuality that they find. They haven't found it, but let's say they find it. What I'm going to say is there's also a genetic marker for adultery, for fornication, for masturbation, for lust. There's a marker for greed. There's a marker for envy, for... Uh, there's a, mar a genetic marker for every sin there is, and that genetic marker is the fall. Every man is corrupt. And when I talk to homosexual men, and I don't say this as often to women, but I say to them, look, from the time I can remember, I wanted every woman that I saw anywhere. Now, that's not literally true, but as a man, you know what I'm talking about, that there seems to be no limit to the number of women that I can desire, okay? So what? Is that my sexual orientation? Am I a polyamorous man? Am I an adulterer? You know, is that who I am? Because it was there from the very beginning. I don't remember making any choice to desire every woman that there is on the face of the earth. I don't remember making a decision that I was going to spend my life trying to avoid lusting after women. I just remember that from the time I can remember, I wanted women. So what? Am I absolved of responsibility? Am I not a moral agent? Because I, I'm not limited to just wanting my wife and I have to fight against lusting after anybody other than my wife, right? I mean, it's just a joke. All kinds of sins, we, we don't remember their origin. We don't remember making any decision to be a bitter man. We don't remember making any decision decision to spend our life in bondage to greed. We don't remember the day we decided to take our first drink or to get hooked on antidepressants. But listen, we are accountable to God. And we are accountable to God for a sin, no matter what our sin is, our besetting sin, that had its origin in the fall of Adam, who lived at a time where we weren't alive and never knew him. And that is the origin of every sin. There is a genetic marker, and the genetic marker is that Adam is the father of us all. And so you say nature nurture, and I say it doesn't really matter. What matters is that God made Eve for Adam, that marriage was created by him in the garden prior to the fall. It's to be between a man and a woman who are committed for life, one man, one woman. Any violation of that is going to be attended by innumerable contributory factors, including the fall of Adam. And it's not that it doesn't matter. It does matter. If we found that we could give an inoculation against what my brother 
died of, which was cystic fibrosis, we'd give the inoculation. If we found that there was a certain kind of vitamin that you could take and all of a sudden your desires would be for women instead of men, we'd take the vitamin. I think everybody would take the vitamin who was a Christian because nobody wants to be tormented by homosexual desires, right? Nevertheless, we're moral agents before God, we're accountable. And we must not make excuses for ourselves. Well, not much I can think to add to that. Next week, we'll be looking further into the ramifications of the whole nature versus nurture debate. What about Christians who claim to be born gay but practice celibacy? What about Christians who, whether by nature or nurture, are predisposed to be a certain way? And nothing they do seems to change that. It only gets crazier from here, folks. Stay tuned. The World We Made was written by Nathan Alberson and produced and executive produced by Nathan Alberson and Jacob Menzel. You can find more great content at warhornmedia.com or follow us on social media under at warhornmedia.com.